0: come for the cats stay for the theology (laughs) okay so did i scare you um this is actually mika moxie has like not been chilling in her normal spot she's actually in here on the ground but anyway uh, ever since we gave her her haircut she's not a happy camper she just like it changed her routine of where she sits anyhow this is the tuesday live stream uh tuesday live stream wow there was like robotically went into tuesday live stream mode which i haven't done in a while This is the Friday Q&A, and I'm taking your guys' questions. The first question I'm dealing with today is the topic of the destruction of private property as justified by Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. And let me tell you why I'm covering this now. You're like, Mike, you just did a video on Monday all about Jesus flipping the tables, cursing the fig tree. I did all the theology of it and just tons of stuff. Didn't even occur to me, okay, maybe I'm a little silly, but it didn't occur to me that somebody might think that what Jesus did relates to um, not just protests. Okay, protests are one issue. I'm talking about violent protests of destruction of private property uh, as part of a protest. And uh, it didn't occur to me, but one hour after I taught that live stream on Monday, I went on Facebook and I see one of these memes. I'll I'll share a couple of them with you. And then I'm going to go to your guys' questions after I answer this first question. Uh, Then I'll go to all of your questions. Go ahead and put them in the live chat. We're going to take up to 20 questions today. Dealing with theology, apologetics, Christian life. So this, oddly enough, this this one right here that I'm wiggling on your screen. This one was actually part of the picture I used to make the thumbnail for Monday's video. But notice the the the, um, the meme part. It says, "People, destruction of property is not a valid form of protest." Jesus, and then there's a picture of Jesus flipping over the tables, carrying a whip, and then uh, another a, t- a Twitter post from a guy named Tim Hall. It says, "Destruction of property." property is not a valid form of protest, Jesus. And then it has a picture of Jesus doing the same thing. Although this is another one of those funny photos where Jesus, if you see, I'll put it in the middle here. Jesus is like placid (laughs) as if he overturned tables, like in complete calmness. Anyhow. um, So is, is this, does Jesus flipping the tables, clearing out the temple, does that justify, does that excuse, does that give fodder for the the kind of real violent stuff that we've been seeing and i look i'm not trying to comment here today right now on black lives matter i'm not commenting on uh democrat and republican issues and if you can't separate issues and deal with them one at a time you will not think clearly on this kind of stuff and you will be driven by your your prior commitment to one political group you'll be driven by that rather than by justice and truth and following jesus your commitment needs to be to jesus not to a political group right wherever that political group happens to overlap onto christian values you're going to support it wherever it doesn't you're going to fall away from it and there's there's a need to be have your allegiance be to christ above all else but everybody wants to co-opt jesus and so they all want to like try to take christ and put them into their whatever they're doing, right? To affirm them. This is how, you know, you get armies on opposite sides of a battlefield and everyone's got crosses on their shields because they all think that God is on their side because they started with their side and then they tried to import God into it and started, instead of starting with God's side, knowing what God is interested in, knowing what God is all about, knowing what Christ is about and then aligning themselves with that. And that's what's happening here, I think, in this case. um, This is a co-opting of Jesus. When he came to the temple... Here's some differences between this and sort of the violent destruction of personal property, which is all I'm talking about. And, and no matter how many times I say that, some I know in the comments, like, you can't think clearly on this issue because everything's like spaghetti. It's all intertwined to you. But you've got to learn to break these things into pieces if you're going to think biblically about them. And let's deal with the piece of, can I go and, and you know, set fire to this person's business because I think there's racial injustice going on in uh, in our community. And the answer is no. Um, Even if you're right about all the racial injustice, no, you can't do this. Not as a Christian, not as a Christian, not as a follower of Jesus. So Jesus, when he went to the temple, he's not just going to a place to file a protest, right? He's not just angry. He's coming to his temple, right? He says, my father's house, he has personal ownership of this place. Like He's Lord, Jesus is Lord. The other disciples wouldn't have had an excuse to do this. Jesus is uniquely Lord. He's, he's the God of all creation. He's the Lord of the earth, and he's most certainly the one in charge of the temple, the one who the temple is for. It's his house. You can destroy property in your own house if you like. That's fine, right? You, you, can, you can do that. You can even take stuff that your kids, and as a discipline to them, you can throw it away, or you can hide it, or you can set it aside, You can overturn the gaming table of your kid if they're too obsessive about their gaming. You can do this if you want, but that that would be more of a parallel to Jesus. You're cleaning your own house. But scripture, what it actually says, and we're going to read some scripture on this because there are two kinds of people, those to whom this is total common sense for a Christian and those who are really, really in the dark. Like they're really confused about how to follow Jesus on this issue. Here's what Jesus says about taking revenge, retaliation. And I'm going to say that the, the, the kind of stuff that we see in the protest is, is ex- extra bad, okay? Again, I'm just dealing myopically with this one issue of not just protests in general, but the, the violence that bleeds onto many of the protests that are going on now, or any other similar protest that involves that kind of violence. As a Christian, I have to come against that. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that's the rallying cry of the violent side of protest right now. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Then he goes on and makes it worse for us, for us in our flesh. Uh, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain, which is a good thing, on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let me read one other passage of scripture to you. I mean... That to me seems abundantly clear, but there's another passage of scripture. And this is what I shared a while back when I talked very briefly about some of the stuff that was going on. Um, and it was um, it, it was this passage in Romans that I mentioned, and I thought that this would help give people guidance, although I think it fell flat some sort of because people don't see how it applies into the actual issues with Black Lives Matter or with um, I support the police or or with all of these things. They just don't see how it relates, okay? But maybe today this will help it click a little bit more. And again, I don't know the right answers to all the political stuff going on. I just know that I'm called to be Christian, truly Christian in the midst of it all. And that rules out a lot of the way people are acting for me. Romans twelve fourteen: bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse them. I think we're supposed to take that pretty seriously as Christians. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate uh, with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And then it gets really nuts and bolts. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I mean, you know, violent protests. Like the the Mexican restaurant down the street from my house that had their windows busted in, in, in the name of, you know, social justice like this is this is the opposite of social justice in all reality and it certainly is the opposite of christian values and honorable behavior in the sight of all people and not repaying evil for evil if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves never but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if enemies enemies hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And basically what I'm seeing a lot of, and this is more often at the moment, not always, but it is more loudly on the side of the the protesters and the defund the police side of things, right? That side. And again, I'm I'm not really sure how to navigate all these issues. But what I'm seeing on that side is a, is a proclivity, a tendency to constantly say, the thing I'm doing that, that would normally be viewed as wrong and evil and immoral is okay because they're so bad that I can do this thing. And this is, this is the excuse of, I'm going to let evil now overcome me. Their evil will trigger my evil and I'll respond in kind. So I'm going I'm to, you know, I'm not going to turn the other cheek. I'm going I'm to strike back and strike back hard so there you go that, that's I think a more biblical view of that and I think that it's pretty straightforward um, let's see here I do need your guys questions and I should be getting them in the live chat right now but I'm not getting them over sent over so uh, maybe, uh, Sarah, you could send me some some of the questions over when you guys get a chance. I will take another question, though, real quick. And this does relate. This was sent to me, and I was thinking about answering this in the future, but I'll just go ahead and spit it out there while I'm waiting for one of the mods to send me over some questions. Um, Christian Regel had this question, and it was in the live chat uh, earlier on. I just It just struck me. And he says, Hey, Mike, I've been dealing with doubts recently, and it never seems to be the cause of any intellectual problem. I feel like it's—it uh, feels like an attack— how would you handle this? So th- this is interesting because you're feeling doubt, but you can't trace it to like an actual intellectual issue, right? Now maybe the the, the fearful doubts are causing intellectual f- flavors in your mind. If that hopefully makes sense, but I've I've been here. I've been in this exact situation that you're talking about, Christian. So dealing with doubts never it never seems to be the cause of any intellectual problem, it feels like an attack. I think that it exactly is an attack. Um, so here's my quick counsel, someone who's been there. Okay, one is continue seeking the Lord and pray in faith. You do not stop engaging in the positive spiritual activities that you should be engaging in as a Christian. Uh, that you're you're seeking the Lord in prayer, in his word, in times of worship, and I would also add to this avoid temptation avoid temptation which will most likely rear its ugly head right now and you know you'll have ideas to do things that that seem uh normally you wouldn't normally do them right but this is this is a time when temptation may heighten itself because you know satan's going to look for an opportune time in your life and um consider praying about if there is a, a specific cause and praying about that cause one thing i found Uh, helpful was in the middle of difficult times, spiritual attack, when I feel like it's just a spiritual attack and I have no explanation beyond it's a spiritual attack, is to take that time to stop and worship. And so sing as as badly as you want to (laughs) and actually worship the Lord in the middle of that moment. And the final little piece of advice I'd give as this is be okay with your own weakness here. It's okay to struggle with with fear, to struggle with doubt. It's what we do with all those things that really dictates whether we're honoring Christ at that moment. And so be okay with saying, okay, I'm weak. I'm insufficient, but I trust you, Lord. I, I just, I trust you. You're good. And live in that place because in your weakness, God's strength is manifested. In fact, Paul went so far as to say, when I'm weak, then I am strong. There's a strength that comes in your life when you are just pathetically weak and oh, I've, I've been there. I've lived there. I think I do live there <laughs> many days. And, um, and I actually rejoice in a sense because of what God is doing through it. So there's some, some tips, some advice. Um, I hope that something there is beneficial to you. Uh, Kara Gordon has a question. We can see in the Bible that we are to care for the orphan, widow, etc. and uplift those whom society shuns. Should this play out differently in the life of a believer than it does currently in the world? Uh, So many people, especially in my young student circles, see political action, ideals like socialism or communism as the way forward in this. So so socialism, communism, that's how we're going to take care of the poor, how we're going to get social justice to happen. Basically, do you think there's a difference between biblical justice and modern social justice? That's a huge question, Kara. And uh, I'm going to ramble on it for a minute. And I hope that you find these thoughts helpful. Um, what we, what we're looking for right now is what are the differences? And this is actually really on target with the first question I dealt with today, because it has to do with having our Christian values intact and not just signing up, you know, with, you know, how it is with a contract. Like there's all these details and then you put your signature on the bottom and you've, you've adopted all of that. And as a Christian, you, it's it's like, you can never really do that with any group. Because your your signature is on the bottom of the Christian contract. And so you have to view all of this stuff as a Christian. Now, I do think that we can live in a socialist, communist, uh, democratic, or, you know, like a republic, like democratic republic, what we have in America, um, or or a, you know, a monarchy. You could live in any of these environments and serve God and serve him well. And any of these governments could could possibly do well, possibly do well, not that they will, but they could right because it depends on the the whether there's corruption amongst the people and then the government issue like what style of government's going to best do this is a secondary issue it's not like socialism will automatically take care of the poor more um it's i i in my view there might be some structures of the government that that help some groups better than others but in the end it's going to come down to corruption of individuals and so having a view of sin nature that i have i personally like a governmental structure that understands that people are corrupt and has protections against those corruptions built in, and that I think is pretty important. And if you idealize people, you end up having problems. But here's some differences between the modern social justice and what I think would be a more biblical justice. And actually, I have a scripture for you on this. Um, Leviticus 23 talks about it. Now, in in the social justice thing, and I live in California, and so we've been seeing a lot of this in our in our time and in our place and i'm i'm, I'm more conservative leaning in, in my not only my religious views but in my in my uh, political views although i'm somewhat embarrassed because i i i can't sign up with what i see the republican party as as a christian i'm like i'm like where do my values actually intersect with the values of these political parties i'm sort of more scared of the others the, the left side than I am aligned with the right, <laughs> at least from my my understanding of things. Um, but one of the things that we see going on right now is is in the social justice thing. One of the problems with it is I think special interest groups ends up polluting the biblical idea of actual justice. And so justice is a great concern for the poor, yes, but not elevating the rights of the poor above the rich or the rights of the rich above the poor. So justice, biblically speaking, is equal weights and measures, equal justice, equal rules, and equal punishments. Everything's totally equal. That's actually what justice means. But right now, what we're thinking is um, not equal laws of punishments and, and, and responsibilities, but what the social justice movement tends to push, I think, is equal like outcomes and so we think okay if you're if you're rich or if you're in sort of a, a group that we consider more prosperous versus a group that is we consider more uh, suffering or persecuted or marginalized or minority in some sense then what we we have to do is we have to raise those mi- minority groups up and, and you are know, whatever they are whether it's homosexual or if it's if it's a a a, a An ethnic group, I don't really like the term race because I don't think it's a real thing, but an ethnic group, whatever the group is, we need to sort of raise them up so that their experience in life matches what we think is happening over here amongst the majority. And so we have terms like there's the oppressor group and the oppressee. And I think all of this is a a formula for the opposite of biblical justice. Because what we're doing is we're just replacing favoritism towards one group with favoritism towards another group. And this is this is the same problem that I see. If I think that, it, like, say, this group of people, whether you're talking about white people or whatever, and you th- and and if in your mind, this is a hypothetical. If in your mind, you think this group of people is getting benefits and privileges that other groups aren't getting, and so your solution is to have a unfair scale that benefits and privileges these other groups that you consider oppressed then all that has to happen is you, you move into the oppressed category if you're one of them, then you now have unfair, unjust scales applied to you as a way of fixing things. This is not a biblical, like as a Christian, I, I don't support this, right? And scripture doesn't either. So Leviticus 23 talks about it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim. Is this really the verse I wanted? Ah, no. Exodus 23. There we go. I'm like, wait a minute. Um, okay, Exodus 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, you sh- nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit to side with the many so as to pervert justice. Don't pervert justice. And then finally it adds this, which applies to today a lot. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So you, you can't oppress anybody. That's the idea. You can't be partial to the poor. You can't be partial to the rich. You must be impartial in judgment. Judgment has to be, you know, the eyes of justice have to be blindfolded. And the justice has to be fairly meted out whether you are royalty or poverty. It doesn't matter. Same scales, not same results. That's the difference, right? Because if you feel you have to create the same, the end result of a person's life experience, if that's your goal, then you create all kinds of injustice in the society to try to make uh, an end result happen for a specific individual. So I think that that's, that's there. There's another verse uh, I'll bring you to um, Leviticus 19, 1915. You shall do no injustice in court, no injustice in court. And then it's described, right? You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor whoa, this is just exactly what biblical justice is. It's, it's perfect fairness. It's, it's the same scales of requirements and responsibilities and judgments put on all people. That's the same result. So it, so biblical justice, I'm going to say, it, this will be controversial, but I, I ask you, hear me out. Okay, I'm not, I'm probably, if you're upset with me for saying this, I'm probably not saying what you think I'm saying. But if you think that a higher percentage of say black people in jail, Means that there's injustice that's you're measuring results of how many people are in jail and that you're measuring the wrong thing what we need to do go, to go back and do is examine what crimes they commit now maybe it is injustice but it's not because there's a higher percentage that's silly not <laughs> biblical right what we have to do is say when, when, when the same people commit the same crimes versus like say someone who's white commits the same crime do they get the same punishments that would be justice, not what percentage of people are into. We're just measuring it wrong. We need to look at um, requirements and punishments, responsibilities, and not results. That's what we have to look at, I think, to find justice. And that, I think, is where a lot of this social justice stuff fails. In creating protected groups that have super rights So, um, homosexual, um, is, is a, is a category that slowly became kind of like an ethnicity kind of treated like a minority ethnicity group, which is, it's a sexual preference is what it is, but became treated like a minority group and then got elevated rights. But when you elevate the rights of one group, you always, always oppress whatever the other group is. That's the, that's the only way to do that. To push one person's rights above others is to oppress one, to elevate women's rights to their bodily autonomy, which really is abortion, what you've done is you've just demolished the rights of the unborn, right? We've, we've elevated women as a minority group. We elevate, well, sort of minority. <laughs> I think there's more women than men in the world, but, um, but they're treated like that in that kind of special ca- class and category. We elevate the women's rights. We demolish the rights of the unborn. This is not justice. This is injustice. This is ungodly. This is wicked. Whatever else your views are, you, 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 you shouldn't have that perspective if you're a Christian. So if I haven't been... Controversial enough. Um, next question. Hi, Pastor Mike. Any suggestions of Christian resources ministries for women struggling with pornography? Why does the church focus more on men with this? God bless from the six Canada. Um, okay, first question for women struggling with pornography. I really don't know, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask though, Kara, that you check the the live, well, not the live chat. Okay. Because in the live chat, you guys can't post links, but you can in the, in the video when it's completed. So those who know what I want you to do is in, in, in capital letters on your, on your comment below, I want you to put, um, the word resources, right? Capital letters. And then you can put whether it's one, two or three resources for Kara, something that she might be aware of. Why do we deal with men? I think women are more ashamed than men on this issue. And so there's been more men who sp- Spoken out in, in self self selfless, selflessly embarrassingly about their struggles on this issue and it has slowly created an acceptance for a place in the body of Christ for men dealing with this issue but I think there's less and less women that have spoken out and so it just it's just kind of a self-propagating silence on that issue um, I think it's more embarrassing to women than men and it, it might be that men struggle with it more than women but I'm I don't know that for sure what do I know I'm 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 yeah I don't I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to guess that, that that's the case and that um, what would help is women speaking out more on the issue. But I would encourage speaking out on the issue in ways that, that come from a place of victory so that you can help others through it, not just talking about it. Because there's something where we get this catharsis by just talking about our problems but coming to no solutions about them. And I think when it comes to problems that are plaguing lots of people, what we need is the people who have, have come to solutions and have come to change. We need them to speak out because they... They're they're the one who is, you know, they've got the antibodies, right? They got sick with the thing. They got the antibodies. They're over it now. And they can share the thing that helped them to help others. So we need more women who will do that. Another question from LA who says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Any suggestions of, oh, did I read that one? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Sorry. L Katrina says, what are your thoughts on the Enneagram and its origins? Some research states that it was created by Desert Fathers and mystics, however, some churches point its origins to Catholicism. As far as I know, the Enneagram doesn't come from either of those places. What I've, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking tentatively here, but what I have understood about the Enneagram is that it was pushed by, by a a modern mystic. It didn't exist back in the day. I don't know of any true ancient ancestor of the Enneagram. You might be able to find some weird connection to the to the past. But I think it's a it's a construct that's more modern, and I think that the guy I can't remember his name right now, but the guy who pushed the enneagram was definitely has horrible teaching spiritually on things like dangerous, ungodly, wicked teaching on spiritual on spiritual issues, and so the questions you have are, how much does that teaching affect this enneagram thing? How useful is it? I think people find pragmatic use in it, but the question is, where's the overlap between this guy's garbage and And this thing that he's created that people like um, the Enneagram but I haven't spent a lot of time on it part of the reason is because I I, on a personal level I just don't care about that stuff I don't I don't I'm not obsessed with like evaluating my own numbers and and I just don't care (laughs) so so I haven't looked into it much but I'd recommend you uh, consider looking more recent for the real history of the Enneagram now even if it has some origin related to Catholicism historically it doesn't have like a biblical origin that I'm aware of that doesn't mean that it's anti-Bible though, right? But but let's not call it Christian because I don't think there's any sort of spiritual connection that's going on there. So um, thank you guys for joining us. So just a reminder of what we're doing here. Every, every My name's Mike Winger. I'm a pastor in Southern California. I make YouTube videos dealing with theology, apologetics. My goal is to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. Like I want you to know that Christianity is true. The fact of its truthfulness, I, so I bring various different kinds of evidence, and I try to incorporate the evidential side of Christianity into, like, everything I do, little tid, little tidbits, little flavorings here and there, it's like garlic, I just kind of put it everywhere, um, but I also do verse by verse teaching, I tackle top, tough topics, I try to think biblically about them, and I don't really shy away from controversial issues, I just try to hand, handle them thoughtfully, and Subscribe if you're interested, or you guys can follow on podcast. You know, Bible Thinker's on podcast. We also have an app for your smartphone, the Bible Thinker app that you can download. It's all free. Everything I do is free. And you can go to BibleThinker.org if you want to check out the website and maybe some of the playlists that are there. All right. So T. says, um, you say we're saved by faith alone and not by works. So how can you say you are not saved by living a homosexual lifestyle? Isn't that blending faith and works? So which works are required? So, um, the, di- the main difference this is a great question. The main difference, uh, Tion by, is understanding when we say you're saved by faith alone, apart from works, that's how you are saved, right? That's a how a person gets saved, um, works or the life you live doesn't save you. It doesn't cause you to be saved, but it does come as a natural result of salvation. The work of God's Holy Spirit in a person's life. When they enter into relationship with him, when their lives are transformed, This changes them and then they live it out. They really believe in Jesus. They're now empowered by the spirit. And so when you look at their life, you will normally see them living a Christian life. So the works are evidence that a person's saved, but it's not how they get saved. Let me give you an example. If I go to the car dealer and I get a new car, right? Um, I buy the, the new car with money and then I drive the new car away. So here we have a cause of me getting a car and we have the evidence of me having a new car. When you see me driving a new car, that's evidence that I have a new car. You don't see the money. You don't see the process of how I got it. So the way I got it, it's not what you're looking at. You're looking at the results in the same sense. Salvation was purchased, it was, but it was purchased by Jesus, right? It was purchased completely by, by Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone through faith by itself, right? Apart from works. That's what Ephesians two tells us. And and yet Ephesians two goes on to say but we're made for good works. So the result is good works. So I you you they you bought the car with money and you driving it is the evidence that you own it to the rest of the world. Well, Jesus bought your salvation and he gifted it to you. And you living it out in with good works is just evidence to the world. So when you say a homosexual lifestyle, someone's living a homosexual lifestyle, and, and I like the way you put that, because I um If the issue is someone being homosexual, meaning they're they're same-sex attracted, that doesn't mean they're not saved. But if someone's living out a homosexual lifestyle, or I would say living out an adulterous lifestyle, or living out an ungodly, wicked lifestyle, you have good reason to question their salvation. Just like if a guy says he has a new car, but he never drives it, and he's walking everywhere, and you're like, I wonder about that new car claim, right? I wonder about that salvation claim. That's just a fair thing to do. I will, though, go to the cat camp because, you know what, Moxie decided to join us after all. There she is. Now, you can see from her front, she's got, like, we give her the lion cut, right? Sorry for those who don't like cats. Get over yourself. <laughs> and, um, the uh, the lion cut, which means she's all furry up front, and then she's skinny, and then she just has a poof at the end of her tail, which you can kind of see right there. Right there. All right. There's there's Moxie, finally joining us after weeks of being a hermit. Okay um question number 7 so or is this 8 i don't know <clears throat> 7 i guess Ryan Hasty has a question how do you know if you believe in your heart versus just logically thinking in your mind that the evidence points more toward Christianity being true than false referring to Romans 10:9 um well actually let's go to Romans 10:9 let's see if that verse will help answer your question because i think it will all right so it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The the, um, the combination of the heart and the mouth is interesting here in this passage, right? So I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is not just an objective claim about the identity of Christ. Because when you said when they would they would take their pinch of incense to Caesar and they would throw it in, in in the fire and they would say Caesar is Lord. They didn't just mean objectively Caesar is the boss of Rome. What they really meant was Caesar is my boss. I am a, have allegiance to Caesar and everybody knew that that like pinch pinch of incense meant I am I am submitting myself to the lordship of Caesar. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're submitting yourself to his lordship. You're saying, you're my boss. Now, that doesn't mean you're working to earn salvation. It, it's, it's a heart mentality that says, not only do I intellectually believe, right? But I, I I entrust myself to you. I yield my heart and my life to you. You you are in charge, Jesus. I submit. That's what it is. It's, an, it's the I submit, right? And then the phrase, believe in your heart, is probably a reference to not just intellectual belief, but to like that decision to entrust yourself to it. So you can have intellectual belief in your head, but I wouldn't call that believe in your heart. I think that that means like kind of believing with a sense of yielding, a sense of trust, a sense of fidelity. So the difference between intellectual belief and genuine Christian faith is a sense of personal yielding and personal trust that goes beyond that, right? I, I believe in my wife's ability to cook a good meal right but but just mentally believing it is different than like me going man when she cooks it's gonna be good it's it's just different like I yeah I I hope that helps it's really practical it's really very much like real humanity we're talking about here and not just um we're not Spocks right you're not Spock for for the Star Trek fans we're not Spock we're not. Just like, hmm, yes, that is objectively true. I will now adjust my behavior accordingly. It's There's like an emotional relational thing that's going on here between you and God. And when you you give in to God, um, that's the moment. Here's a question from Jesse Crocus on Romans 6.23. He says that it says, for the wages of sin is death. And then here's the question. What is the death it is referring to? It is an eternal death? A physical one on Earth, a spiritual death. Oh, that's a that's a good question. Okay, so the wages of sin is death. Um, I well, here we'll go to the passage real quick, and I'm going to give you my thoughts on this. Um, don't know if I've recently thought about this issue. Um, just scanning the passage now. Okay, so verse 22 says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So in the end, the fruit of the salvation that we've been given, it's going to lead to eternal life. And then it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So I, I think that the, okay, there's a contrast going on here between death and life and the, the life that's being talked about, can help us understand the death that's being talked about. If death was merely physical death, then, and that was all that was, you know, in question, and it didn't have anything to do with eternal separation from God, then you wouldn't contrast it with eternal life. So I think that the death here is is talking about physical death and eternal separation from God, Uh, the second death, I think it's talking about all of the above. And I think the context gives us good reason to think that as well. So I hope that I hope that makes sense. That, that's what, you, you know, you just read a thing in context and you look, are there contextual clues in this very verse that help me interpret the meaning of death? Well, it's being contrasted with eternal life. So it probably has that eternal quality. Jody Wainwright, oh, and I, I say has the physical death as well, because earlier on in Romans and all have died and all sin and all died and all, all the context of death in Romans in general includes physical. Jody Wainwright says, have you heard of the dreams of Pastor Dana Coverstone? If so, what are your thoughts? Literally, someone approached me just the other day and told me about this, this gentleman. I don't know hardly. I know this much, right? I just heard a rumor, basically. So I don't know, Jody. Um, I may take some time to look into it. I definitely had it like, oh, I'd like to look into this and find out. I will say this, that <clears throat> there were a number of, of guys um, who appeared on Sid Roth's Supernatural TV show. And, um, and I'm just shooting super straight with you guys. This is kind of what I'm going to do on Fridays. And the, um, I I say, the reason why I say that is because I'm saying things that I know are going to trigger some people. (laughs) And, and I, I just want you to know, I'm just being very frank with you and I'm, I'm respecting your ability to think clearly about things. At any rate, on the Sid Roth TV show, there was a number of guys and girls who were brought on men and women who were brought on as prophets and they prophesied in December that the first three months of 2020 were going to be just chaos and everything that could be overturned was going to be overturned. <clears throat> and they just they gave a, a number of things like fires and this and da-da-da. And they didn't ha- really highlight disease because coronavirus has been the biggest thing. They didn't really focus on that, but they did like include it sort of. So this was like really eye-opening to a lot of us. We're like, okay, that seemed like it may have been accurate prophecy. Okay, so I decided to follow some of these guys. Just privately on my own. I haven't spoken about it publicly. I haven't done, I just followed a few of them trying to say, what else do they prophesy next? Because a lot of times these, some, okay, here's my theory, is that if it's the Lord, then they should be consistent in their future proclamations. And we should listen in because if they're right about the first three months, maybe they'll be right about the rest. But consistently, they all saw a quick recovery from COVID. They said that it was going to pass over when we hit Easter and we had Passover And they said that everything was going to go down and disappear and all that kind of thing. And I think that this has clearly not taken place. So my conclusion is this, and this is not about Dana Coverstone, it's about somebody else. They happen to get something that seems pretty right. But of course it could be that they've been predicting bad things happening for years. And finally there was a horrible year. So suddenly they look like prophets. Um, but they said three months it's been a lot more than that another one said the first six months is tearing down the next six months of 2020 is going to be rebuilding we're all going to get rebuilt and put back up and then this has obviously not been the case and so um and then we'd be better than the first six months anyway so here's here's what i want to know with dana dana Coverstone is how does his next prophecies play out and if they do play out i'm like wow i'm gonna to listen to that guy and if they don't then don't Alright, um, next question is from Deke Liu who says Why is God the Father just called God in the New Testament? He doesn't typically have the descriptor the Father added where, whereas Jesus is specifically called the Son and the Spirit is called the Spirit um, Yes, well let me first caveat with this and this is important, this is a really important place to start There are places in the New Testament where Jesus is directly called God No qualifiers, right? just God he's just called God there are places in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is called God and then there's also teaching the Old Testament that supports this as well and so what we have from clear teaching in the scripture is that Jesus is God the Holy Spirit is God the Father is God the question you have is why is the typical the typical term for the Father just God and Jesus is called the Son or or what and and he's not always called the Father and I, I think that um, uh, part of the reason for this is what we see in the New Testament is a teaching of the Trinity that is it's entering into a a, um, a difficult teaching in the scripture. Difficult meaning that people have a hard time with it. They have a hard time understanding it. They have a hard time receiving it. Um, it's just the reality of God's very nature is he's not like any of us. And so in the context of the New Testament, in the context of first-century Israel, for you know, and Judaism, when Jesus is called God, if he's called God all the time, just to use the term God a lot, then there is a, ch- a good chance that people are going to start thinking that Jesus actually is the Father, that he's the Father ma- made manifest, and this is in particular the relationship between Jesus and the Father, that. If, if we call him God all the time, it's going to be modalism that you're going to believe, which a lot of Christians fall into thinking modalism is true, that God the Father becomes the Son who then becomes the Spirit. So I think what we're getting in the New Testament is a sort of carefulness about delineating the difference between the Father and the Son so that we understand the deity of Christ, but understand that there's a personhood there that's not the same as the Father. I hope that that makes, uh, makes sense. I think that that's the reason why. In the Jewish mindset, you call Jesus God over and over and over again, you might not realize he's the Son and not the Father. That's, that would be the reason. Um, they would naturally have seen God as the father, naturally. So let's see here. Next question from Hot Wax 93, who says, "What is What in your mind is the difference between a simple sexual attraction and lust, if any? It seems like too many Christians conflate them as one and the same. And let me uh, take you to a scripture that I think might help on this. Um it's in James 1 and verse 13 here we go difference between lust and just a sexual attraction right and this is a, this is tricky right because even the just even the words we just used i mean attraction implies desire well lust implies desire so is there a difference even well, here's here's the difference between, I'll use different terms, temptation versus sin. Temptation versus sin. Because on some degree, there's always lust involved in sexual attraction. Um, well, and I'll caveat with this. Start with this. Uh, when it's directed towards your spouse, it's a positive thing. When it's directed towards, you know, someone else, it's a negative thing. And so context matters a lot. So we're just talking about when it's directed to somebody who you should not be sexually desiring. So verse 13 here. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then it describes how temptation works in the human psyche. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, so I have desire that is in me, right? It's not just an idea for someone else has. it's, It's my desire. I desire to do something bad, and I am now tempted. Here's the important part. You're not in sin yet. I'm tempted. Okay, I see an attractive woman. And I think to myself, I have desires related to her. And now I'm tempted. I am not yet sinning. You could at that moment resist the temptation, honor Christ, and walk away without having sinned, even though you would have felt a battle with your own wickedness, but you did not sin. Then it goes on. Then desire, when it has conceived, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So when when does temptation go to sin? When it has quote conceived, and it's a it's an analogy that James gives about birth. So um, think of it like if you were a woman, okay, and some of you guys are men. <laughs> I'm a man, but let's pretend that I'm a woman. Uh, and and the in, in this metaphor, the the sinful temptation is like the egg, the egg inside the woman. And I'm going to use a very adult analogy here, but I think it helps because it's the analogy we're getting in scripture. I'm just going to expand on it. The egg is like temptation. Now the temptation is just innocuous. It just sits there. It's just, it, it's not alive. It doesn't have its own existence really as as a being uh, separate from the mother yet. But the moment that the temptation enters in it and is cons- there's a, the sperm, which will be, I'm going to give, I'm going to call this my will, yielding my will, my mental assent to my temptation. I yielded my heart to it. That's the moment when the conception happens. Now there's a new life. In the case of a woman, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Baby, you know, in case of my analogy, it's sin. Now I have committed sin. In the analogy, it goes like this. I'm tempted, even though I have a desire, there's a want in me for sin, and I'm feeling that want, I'm sensing that want. I have not yet sinned. The minute I yield my will, whether that means I begin to fantasize or I take a second look instead of a first. Or a long look instead of instead of a, okay, I noticed something. When I do that, now it becomes sin. Now, I think that happens pretty quick. But it doesn't happen right away. Temptation is first. Sin is next. And if you stop in the battle of your will, you stop and you reject temptation, you die to yourself and you put on Christ, then you have not sinned. I hope that that is useful for you. Um, I think that it really, really comes down to a million little moments every day when you're tempted and you go wait a minute. I didn't sin when I decided to look up something online that was ungodly and inappropriate. I sinned when I had a desire to do it and I yielded my heart to that desire. I gave my will over to that temptation. The sin, the actual sin happened way earlier than I thought. And if we get this, we can fight sin much better because fires are easy to stop when they first start and hard to stop once they're once you've got them going. And if you fight it, when you're the first moment when your will interacts with the temptation, you fight it there. It's not a hard battle. You let it go five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, a week, a year. Now it's a hard battle. So fight the first moment of temptation. Um, here, a question from Brandy Medved who asks, and I have no idea what time it is. Okay. All right. Just checking who says 1 Corinthians 13.10 is so controversial. If the perfect means the Bible and not Jesus, then spiritual gifts have ceased. So wouldn't that leave so many in deception and false understanding? Um, I think 1 Corinthians 13.10 is a verse that is used by some, not all, by some cessationists, think people who think that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased as a regular operating thing in the body of Christ. And I think that it's probably the worst verse that any of them use. Like it's probably the, and I'm not saying this to be snide. I'm not trying to give you guys like, I'm not trying to stir you up. I think it's horribly taken out of context. I think there's no excuse for using this verse to teach cessationism. If, if, I, if I thought otherwise, I'd become a cessationist. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like I'm going to, I want to go where scripture leads here, but, uh, but let me give you some examples. And I have a whole teaching on this. I, maybe the mods can link this. I literally have a whole video on this exact topic of does 1 Corinthians 13 teach cessationism? And maybe someone could put that. But here's a quick overview because I don't want to just always direct you guys to other videos. Love never ends. As for prophecies, guess what? Prophecies are going to pass away. As for tongues, tongues will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the perfect, the partial will pass away when i was a child i spoke like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child when i became a man i gave up these the childish ways for now we see in a mirror dimly but then okay so then face to face what whenever the timing is when the perfect comes and when we stop prophecy and tongues and all that it's the same time when i will see face to face when i will see face to face now i know in part but then i will know fully even as i have been fully known which is to say i will know deeply and intimately, relationally about God. That is not talking about just having the Bible completed. In in no way is the Bible seeing God face to face. In no way am I knowing God fully, even as I am fully known. I'm knowing him intimately the way he knows me. No, I'm not. I'm not knowing that just by having the Bible. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's just not about... um, the, the conclusion of scripture and, and I go into a lot of detail and a very careful teaching on that in that video I, I referenced which is right there in the live chat thank you Sarah for putting it there um, yeah the, uh, there may be some other way to try to teach cessationism but at least don't use this verse it's just it doesn't work it doesn't work I don't know as I'm known and I know all sorts of things from the scripture but not as I am known relationally by God I don't know God the way he knows me intimately, internally no then the perfect will come. Then oh, I will see him face to face, right? And and that is when, face to face, that's when, that's the second coming. And that's when I'm with Jesus in person. Uh, Jackie Zeres says, was God angry with Eli as a father or as a priest for not keeping his sons in check? Um, so Eli was a, was a priest, a high priest and his sons were wicked I mean wicked sons Th- this was back when the, t- when the temple was still in the tents it was, a, it was the tabernacle still and it was at Shiloh it was not in Jerusalem yet and in the book of 1 Samuel we, we read about this this is for everybody other other than Jackie who obviously has already been aware of this um, but e- Eli is the high priest and he has his sons who are helping administer things in the temple one of the wicked things his sons do is they sleep with women who come to the temple to offer sacrifices yeah, society gets that wicked. And it happens all the time. And uh, yep, they're doing that. Okay, so w- absolute wickedness. So is God mad at Eli for his sons violating the temple or f- because because they're priests and he's the high priest or because he's a father who's not taking care of his sons? I think the answer is going to probably be both. That the, the anger, the frustration, the disapproval, the judgment of God comes upon the house of Eli because... He is a father and a high priest who is not disciplined and dealt with the priests or his sons, which are the same people. So I, I think it's both. Um, I think it's both. He did not hold back his sons, I think is the term used. He, it's something like that. He didn't hold back his sons. And I think about this all the time when I think about people in power who give their kids, which I'm I'm honestly, I'm fine with nepotism to a degree, right? Like you're, you're the boss, you hire your kid, your kid's going to be the next boss, fine right that's in your family but in the midst of that if you're not disciplining your kids and you're not keeping them from doing wicked things that you would never let anyone else do then you're making the mistake of eli and that's a pretty big deal um so uh spider g has a question what do you think about the book of enoch um, well, I, I think the Book of Enoch has gotten a lot of interesting press recently. The Book of Enoch is an intertestamental work. Something people don't know about it is it's, it wasn't written all at once. The Book of Enoch has, there's different sections to the Book of Enoch. I think it reveals to us, so, and some of it's written after Christ. Okay, so some before, some after. The Book of Enoch is a very complicated book. It's also a very big book. I've also got it on my bookshelf back there somewhere. Um, the nice thing about the Book of Enoch is it gives us a window into the intertestamental period. So we have information in this book that is, you know, after Malachi and before Matthew. And so we have historical data, okay? But I don't think it's inspired. I don't think it's, 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 it's not, it was never part of the Jewish canon of scripture. It was never part of the Old Testament to the Jew. And it was never part of the New Testament for the church in any kind of consensus view. The church has never viewed it as part of the Old or New Testament, but recently, there is, there is like a surge in people who want to canonize the Book of Enoch. When I did my video on how we got our Bible and, you know, my series, Evidence for the Bible, where I talked about, you know, how we got this specific list of books in our scripture, I don't even deal with the Book of Enoch because it's like a non-issue historically. It's just not really a big thing. Now, you can try to blow it up and make it an issue, but I think you're just blowing it up. So my answer is historically interesting, not canonical. Um, there may be information in uh, Jude from the book of Enoch. That's trippy, right? And this is probably the biggest, you know, thing going on. But we also have to recognize the book of Enoch. It's 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 a varied work, different authors. It didn't come from Enoch. Uh, Jude could be saying that these things really happened, or he could just be using an illustration from a book that was known to the people of the time. We just don't have, like, a clear affirmation of the scriptural quality of the book, um, and that's what the church is kind of always viewed. At least that's my understanding of it. I know someone's a, a, an aficionado of the book of Enoch, and you probably need me to nuance things better. And sorry, I'm not able to do that. Uh, Chantal One has a question. We relocated the church we're going to and want to join. Uh, their pastor has been reading out of the Passion Translation more and more. Should we rethink our decision? Chantal, I, I don't think that that's enough information to go on. Um, I would want more info to help guide you and give you wisdom in this decision. They're quoting the Passion Translation. Is he just like a pastor who doesn't think deeply about these things? Maybe sometimes problematic translations can be quoted by people, and it's like it just never affects them because they're just, oh, that's a nice way of saying it, and then they move on with their lives, and they're not really teaching from it normally, and it doesn't seem like it has a big impact. So I would consider it a mistake. Irresponsible? Yeah, irresponsible, because the tra- the Passion Translation is a is a, a problematic, tra- it's not just an. Uh, A poor translation it's a problematic translation in many places but um but maybe there's more maybe maybe there's compromises going on beyond i really don't know Chantel. i would just i would gather more data i would sit there longer i would listen more carefully to the teaching i would uh, maybe talk to the pastor about it send him one of my videos on the fashion translation if you really got guts and um and be patient about whether or not you'll stay at the church but I would also counsel, counsel you this find another church to commit to before you leave the current church because you need to be part of the body of Christ even if the body locally has issues and isn't perfect which they all do just don't just disconnect and then float rather you know kind of go back and forth looking for a church while you're still in fellowship uh, that would be my, my counsel Robert Butcher says how can I lovingly bring up and reveal the errors of the prosperity gospel to friends and family and I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a lightning round. I got like four questions, five questions left. And I'm just going to give you guys really super fast answers just so I can get to all 20 today. So how can you lovingly bring up the errors of the prosperity gospel? I would start by affirming things that you can affirm in their views. I love your belief in trust and faith. I love your confidence and da, da, da. And then I would encourage also finding resources you can send them that do the same thing. So when I did my Bill Johnson video, I started by affirming good things and trying to build a bridge with Bill Johnson's followers, trying to be as gracious as I can, trying to see it from their perspective. Find resources that deal with the teachings that your, that your friends and family are believing that are fallacious, that are do it from a gracious perspective where you look at it and you go, they could watch this. And the reason why I recommend a resource and not just a conversation is because they can't interrupt a video. They can't interrupt a written letter. There's things they can't interrupt that may allow you to communicate to them more fully than if you bring issues up and they're just a back and forth that ends up sometimes being fruitless. So writing a letter or sending a resource that is a bridge building resource, that's where I would start. Um, Cameron Powers, if I'm truly seeking God, will he show up for me? Yes. Will he show up in the way you expect? sometimes (laughs) um yeah yeah of course you truly seek the lord and you will find him seek him with all your heart and you will find him absolutely amen praise god will he always do what you want him to do or think he'll do no and that's that's the thing uh, Spazzy Jazzy says, I've been reading lots of reports of exploitation of the laborers who make the products we use every day, chocolate phones, etc. Should we as Christians boycott or abstain from these things? Spazzy Jazzy, I am not informed enough to know. I mean, maybe I should, and I just don't know it, and I, I feel terrible if that's the case. Um, so I, I just, I don't know. That's a, that's a great question, and I would have to know a lot more to be able to process that, and I, hopefully I'm not dropping the ball there. Uh, Sarah Nordberg says, are Christians allowed to read and study the Quran? In Denmark, I have to take a class on religion before I can study theology at the university. But I feel convicted when reading. Should I stop? No, go for it. And here's the reason why, Sarah. Um, when you when you read the Quran, you're you're educating yourself. I've read the Quran. Okay, when you're educating yourself on understanding Islam. And I learned so much by reading the Quran. Like I should do, I should do a video on just like what my thoughts were reading the Quran because. Uh, it, it's, it's very revealing. It's confusing. The Quran's weird. It's written um, largely, it's organized largest chapter to shortest chapter. That is not chronologically, not in the, like, this chapter's bigger. We'll put it up towards the beginning. This chapter's shorter. We'll put it towards the end. So it's super confusing. But but it's educational. Um, you won't become Muslim reading the Quran. Um yeah. So I, I would say study it as an, as an evangelical outreach technique. You're learning it so that you can talk to Muslims. How much, how much would it open the door for Muslims when you meet them? And they go, I'm Muslim. And you say, oh, yeah, I've read the Quran. I mean, you're just going to blow their mind. Um, and it'll open a door. So, so I think so. Now, if you if you find yourself, you're the kind of person who's really tempted and really struggles when you, when you read stuff that's not Christian, then don't, right? Like, but that's, just be honest with yourself. Like, you're weak in that area. And then you shouldn't you shouldn't do things that you're not able to do, right? Honor God and protect your own heart and don't do that, okay? But if you're able to, I don't see any problem with it. Uh, let's see, last question uh, from Adriano. Why was the tree of no- the knowledge of good and evil bad? Isn't wisdom generally regarded as a good trait in the Bible? Um, well, the wisdom and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are not the same thing. So wisdom would be with a wisdom to say, hmm, God said not to eat that tree. It would be wise not to eat that tree. Wisdom is about like living life skillfully. I think of wisdom as skill at living. And the the idea of the tree of knowledge of good and evil wasn't just knowledge in general. It wasn't just about getting knowledge. It was about the experiential knowledge of having done wrong and now being thrust into that world of temptation and of... um, autonomy, moral autonomy, where I make sinful decisions apart from the will of God. And so that is, of course, a, it was a bad thing. It was a bad th- It was done in rebellion to God. And so it was a, a bad thing. Now God used it for good and will continue to use it for good and bring good out of it. But I hope those differences help you to think clearly about this issue. And I have been trying to help you learn to think biblically about everything. And I may have started some fires, but hopefully they were, they were worth starting. <laughs> And um, we'll be back Monday, this Monday, I'm I'm pausing on the Mark series for probably just one week, probably just one week. But this Monday, I'm going to do a a thing on three of an article that was three top atheist arguments against God. and We're going to cover those. They're some of the worst arguments you've ever heard. And we'll talk about that. And then um, Wednesday, I have another video coming out. I can't remember what. (laughs) And then next Friday, I'll be here with the Q&A. So uh, Lord bless you guys. Um, I'm sure there's other things I can announce. I will... I will close with with my cat tearing apart my chair. There it is. All right. You guys have a good one. See, even she's checking out. Take care.